0: You are listening to The Next Best Picture Podcast, and in this episode, we review Inferno and certain women. It appears you're out of options. Tell me about the threat, known as Inferno.
1: (laughs) Professor Langdon, we need your help. Three days ago, a man killed himself. We think it was part of something much bigger. There was a package in his pocket. And what was it? It's
0: Dante's Inferno.
2: Dante defined our modern conception of hell 700 years ago. But these circles of hell have been rearranged. Why Dante? Why this map of hell? Dante, Dante's death mask. Yes, we've got to get to Florence.
0: Hello everyone. What you just heard was the trailer for Inferno And this is a film that is about famous symbologist Robert Langdon, played by Tom Hanks, as he follows a trail of clues tied to Dante, the great medieval poet. When Langdon wakes up in an Italian hospital with amnesia, he teams up with Sienna Brooks, played by Felicity Jones, a doctor he hopes will help him recover his memories. Together, they race across Europe and against the clock to stop a madman, played by Ben Foster, from unleashing a virus ...that could wipe out half of the world's population. Here to review this film with me today, I have Lee from BigPictureReviews.co.uk. Also one half of the Atlantic Screencast podcast with um, my good friend that you may have heard on the show... ...way back when, before when we had our old site. His name is Jason, otherwise known as Film Faculty. But today we've got Lee. Lee, how's it going today? Yeah, it's going great, man. Very excited to talk about Inferno. God help us. <laughs> as yeah, I, yourself. I hear you on that one totally, because I did not particularly enjoy this film, as I will get into in more detail. But let's mm-hmm. start off with a basic question here.
1: Did you read the original novel? Oh, uh, no. I, I have read The uh, the Da Vinci Code, and that's pretty much where I, I checked out with the, the series of Dan Brown novels as a whole. But yeah, it didn't appeal to me in any particular way. Well, have you seen the other two films, Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons? I have seen the Da Vinci Code uh, throughout and I have some like modest affection for it, I suppose. Uh, I did try to watch Angels and Demons and fell asleep. So, that's where that story ends. Yeah,
0: I mean, these films have never been particularly great, in my opinion. I do kind of enjoy The Da Vinci Code a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, so I hear you on that. And Angels and Demons did kind of pick up the pace a bit in terms of, well, I I guess just the overall pace. You know, it was more of like (laughs) a race against the clock kind of a film. So, there was more urgency to it, for sure. Sure. This film here... Well, let's look at it this way. You've got Tom Hanks, Felicity Jones, Omar Sy from The Untouchables, uh, Ben Foster, who's great in everything, Irfan Khan, who is another guy, like Life of Pi, Slumdog Millionaire. This guy's just fantastic. He's great in this. Ron Howard's the director here. He's been in a little bit of a slump lately. Sure. I mean – it seems like this should be a winning combination, but let's get let's get this out of the way. What are your thoughts
1: on Inferno? Uh right. So I mean, like expectations going in, I suppose. N- like uh, nothing. I had nothing against the film. Put it that way. I was. I was. I was kind of modestly excited, as you were saying. The, the talent in it alone should speak to some sort of inherent quality. And again, I did. I did like Dan. Uh, the Da Vinci Code. So I was kind of thinking, oh, well, this could be, at the very worst, a sort of uh, cheap thrill <laughs> or something. But um, Inferno is kind of astounding because it's, I think, a failure in almost every aspect of a of a mystery, of a of an adventure. Even as a logical film, it's kind of. It doesn't hold up in, in in any line of questioning, which is astounding, really, for such a a decent budget and such a you know a hardworking, you know cast of filmmakers. It's incredible. <laughs> you know, somebody asked me recently, "What is an um, an example of an actor that never phones it in?"
0: And I have to say, it's got to be Tom Hanks.
1: Has to be Tom Hanks. I mean, he gives every. I I I seen him earlier this year, and hologram for a king for the king yes uh, I know you have seen uh Sully that's not even out here yet but I, I seen him in that and I again I, I had uh relatively you know I wasn't overly thrilled with the film but you can't fault the guy for giving a shit you know he really did try <laughs> oh yeah I totally hear you I mean the guy is very talented
0: he does throw himself pretty much almost into every single role that he does even in a film like this he's the reason that the film is watchable, because everything oh, yeah, else in this movie falls completely flat. I mean, yeah, on its face, flat. <laughs> and, I mean, did you see uh, In the Heart of the Sea last year? I No, I did not. Uh, that's a Ron Hard film, yeah. Yeah, and that wasn't particularly well done either. So now here we are with Inferno, his next film, and it's another stinker from him. I'm starting to wonder if he's losing it maybe as a director
1: yeah i mean what was his last great film rush yeah most i think most people would say rush yeah uh i mean maybe it's because he kind of has always uh tackled that sort of aspect of being a director producer that you know maybe he's finding it hard to tell the difference between the day job and the night job but yeah i I, I, this felt like a other this film felt like a, a film made to retain rights You know, it didn't feel like there was any genuine passion in it at all. It felt like they just had to make it because they had signed a contract somewhere in some date in the last 15 years to say, you have to do at least three Dan Brown movies. Because, I mean, this is like, what, seven years after Angels and Demons, something like that? Six. Six years, yeah. So, I mean, the train for the Dan Brown craze has already well left the station. (laughs) What was the urgency with this? Why did this need to be made? And then why was it, put together so shodly, it it, it babbles me. And I can't help but think that Ron Hard should know better, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I've got two theories
0: here. Sure. One is the contract theory, which you st- best said before. Mm. The other theory is that In the Heart of the Sea was a box office bomb and did cost a significant amount of money. Right. I wonder if Ron Howard had to kind of pull this film now out of his uh, back pocket And was kind of forced to make it Hmm. when the day came when he did have a true box office stinker on his hands.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, It's just, it's so strange because he's a director that I think a lot of people respect. uh, And he has a, a pretty solid catalog. I mean, not always high art or anything like that. But he certainly, you know, even for commercial properties like Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, people generally regard him, maybe not critically, Overly well, but that overall, that they they don't say they're passionless movies, you know. So that he has this now in his repertoire, it's it just seems so strange. It's like alien for him to to, to be associated with this on a personal level.
0: Yeah, it'll it go down. In my opinion, it's one of the worst trilogies that I've ever seen personally.
1: Oh, jeez, <laughs> I can't even imagine like you know owning the box set. Jeez. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that ain't gonna happen. I don't I don't own any of them on Blu Ray for that matter. Yeah.
0: Um, what did you think of the idea to put a new spin on things with the plot in regards to Langdon suffering from amnesia? And the film almost trying to like play itself out, like almost like Memento, where sure. you know every character seems to know something, but Robert Langdon doesn't seem to know anything, and the mystery kind
1: of unravels yeah. itself. I, um, I guess like I get the I get the concept right. I mean, if if Langdon has any sort of ability like superpower to his name, it's his ability to recall history verbatim. You know, to solve these puzzles. And uh, he, uh, the thing that I found most appealing about Da Vinci Code, is that it was kind of the, the narrative was set up as a critical fiction, as such that uh, the 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 story is set up to be this sort of straightforward, easy easygoing mystery. That but behind it all, the subtext is that we're supposed to be gaining some insight to how the the Catholic Church alters history. You know, so and it, and it's put in this sort of mass appeal, audience pleasing movie because it's sort of pushing this like uh this this series of thoughts on the people who usually wouldn't give it, you know would care about that kind of thing uh with inferno they've taken that one aspect from langdon that he was good at which was being able to push messages onto the audience that uh, you know to teach them about thing, you know uh, conspiracy theories and 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 so on you know they've taken that power from him so now he's just sort of like a dude walking around it just as just as on on an even ground with everyone else and that's it didn't work at all in this film it, it it didn't it didn't set any intrigue to his character and it just made us wonder how strong he was on his own terms to really feel like we could reset the table and start again in
0: another form it's essentially tom hanks in the most boring chase film of the year yeah. <laughs> that's the way i pretty much look into it here is that the plot is so ridiculous. It's it's astounding. very convoluted. And when there is this third act twist, your mind just literally explodes into what the fuckery, essentially. And you're just like, what? What? And so here's the funny thing, too. I, I had read the book prior before seeing the film. Really? Yeah, and I had heard from a couple of people that the ending is actually very different.
1: I, I, I think I looked this up on, uh, I saw this uh, in the Wikipedia article, the, the difference between the book. And it was pretty surprising to me, the way that the book ends in comparison. Let's put it this way. The, the, the book goes for more of like a
0: Watchmen-esque ending. Yeah. Where the movie is so boring in how it, oh my gosh, it's literally Robert Langdon is racing against the clock to stop, uh, to basically save the world. And to prove that humanity is not hopeless. And it's just so... Like, buddy, we've seen this countless times before at least give me something different ha- Hans Zimmer Hans Zimmer I, I love your music can-, can you save this movie with an amazing score uh <laughs> I-, I-, I could do the same score and just make it electronic god damn it Hans <laughs> that's not what I need we needed you man <laughs> like give me something in this film that's gonna get me excited nothing in this movie excited me whatsoever and Felicity Jones my god
1: uh. oh I thought she was terrible in this. I, th- to be fair, I didn't think her performance was that was really that bad. I, I, she didn't lose me in this film, put it that way. I think she was trying, but her character is literally one of the most flawed... It, it, it crumbles the mystery of the film. The idea that, okay, so we have Tom Hanks. He's set up with amnesia in this hospital, and we're introduced to her character, this nurse, who sort of mends him back to health. And then she just tags along with the mystery, never at any point explaining why she would be infested. Anybody who's even remotely, you know, uh, equated with uh, with, uh, mysteries in in any form in, in novels, TV or film will immediately start saying, why don't we know anything about her? Why is she here? And then you just, if you are constantly thinking that about the side characters of the story, you know that there's a twist coming you know that something's going to unravel, or something's just going to flip what we know about her, and they're holding it back from the audience, and they're doing that in such a embarrassingly, you know, plain obvious way that you can't get infested in the movie whatsoever because you're just waiting for it. You're waiting for the stupid reveal, and when they finally get there, it is bonkers. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't it know. It is stupid. It doesn't I, it felt like the, the writers were backtracking immediately on what they you know they had a first draft and instead of sort of cutting back, cutting down and restarting with the parts they liked they just wrote around the parts that they had already written to try and connect it it's insane I I
0: I I remain, huh, I remain so perplexed by this film It's one of the more forgettable movies I will see this year. And it's amazing that back-to-back I had two unbelievable stinkers with Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, and now this. I mean, this was just – you know, I've watched the other films and I was trying to understand and ask myself, what was it about the other films that had me heavily invested? Yeah. And I think a lot of it had to do with the actors – that were involved. Sure. Ian McKellen, Paul Bettany, uh, Ewan McGregor. You know, it's like yeah, yeah. you had some of these really interesting actors in these films. And now let's take a look at this movie for a second. We just we just went through Felicity Jones. All right. Ben Foster is barely in the movie. And every time he does come on screen, it's Ben freaking Foster. He pretty much elevates almost every movie that he's in just by his yeah. mere presence alone. And this is maybe one of the worst examples of using him as an actor that I've seen
1: in <laughs> In recent time. Basically, they had him sit in front of a camera and talk to to nobody for about five, ten minutes. And then they said, well, thanks, Ben, for showing up today. Here's your paycheck. See you later. (laughs) We'll have you do a couple of flashback scenes, a really, really confusing dev
0: scene. And that's pretty much it. Um, Omar Sy, I I mean. They could have taken his character out of the story and nothing would change. No, because he has no character.
1: Well, that's all uh, that's exactly true. <laughs>
0: so that's that's the problem right there. Um, I would say uh, Khan, Irfan Khan. He he's actually pretty interesting, but it's yeah. so luna- It's so lo- It's so much lunacy in his character and his organization and what it is that he does. <laughs> it's just so. Re- that, that, oh my gosh! There's one scene where he opens up a drawer oh, and he's yeah. got like five very very special. Daggers. Knives. Yeah. And I'm just saying to myself, okay, buddy, you installed a drawer full of daggers uh because you <laughs> knew you would need those in your
1: office for what kind of an occasion? You know, it's just so and menacing, stupid. Menacing menacing monologues, obviously. <laughs> oh, God. I actually I I I really liked uh Effron's character, only for the fact that I he represented what I think the tone of this movie should have been, which was just like Cartoonish B movie schlock, you know schlock. Yeah, you know? I think that if it went that way, at least it wouldn't have been boring.
0: <laughs> and then uh, there's the middle aged romance angle. Oh god, I I don't even know why that had to be a part of the film. I don't understand it, but it it just it nothing seemed to work. And you know, you were just saying before about how everything is just so boring. If you watch the trailers and the marketing material for this film there are these moments that you're watching it on screen and you're like, Oh, but that's very visually exciting. And then you come to realize these are just brief snippets of visions that Langdon has in the film where he's like imagining Dante's uh, version of hell. Yeah. And they, they just,
1: they're there on the screen and then they disappear and that's it. They're gone. That That's something I never understood. Do they ever really explain why he sees the visions of hell? I know that they they drug him you know it's revealed that they they drug him it's not like a bullet uh, wound that he suffers it's the, he's he's in some cartoonishly elaborate scheme to get him off the tra- off the trail but uh, that the reason why he sees the visions of hell like so vividly it's he thinks it's because he's you know carrying this plague which he isn't uh, but they never they never explain why they just the, the film felt like it 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 got bored of its own script and decided to inject these like you know red herrings about about the the mystery and give us some visuals that you know as you were saying you know sell us on a trailer you know look interesting visually and, and the film you're right it does absolutely nothing with them at all nothing works no, yeah, it's name me one name me one positive thing about this film um Tom Hanks, I guess, I, but just barely. Am I right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I he does do in glimpses a, a solid Robert Langdon. I mean, like, the character there is more to him than just a sort of walk around James Bond for for older people. He, uh, he, he is he, he's kind of an arrogant ass, you know, and he's a bit of a he's a bit of an egotist. I don't get that at all. Really? Yeah, I, to but be that's, honest with you, I don't know anything about the Robert
0: Langdon character other than who he is through his occupation. Right, right. But
1: well, that's what I mean. That's that's what we're supposed to get, I feel, from Hanks's performance. It's not actually in the script, but little hints in his eyes show that he kind of fancies himself a little too much. And that's, you know, I could read into that and go like, well, there you go. He is something of a character. He's just not a well fleshed out or interesting character but i think that hanks does bring something to him whereas he would be generally you know he would have no traits whatsoever it's like
0: um when there was a video i saw way back when where star wars fans were asked to describe the characters of the original trilogy versus the characters of the prequel trilogy right and for the characters of the prequel trilogy they could not make mention of their occupation or anything to do about their attire. Um, (laughs) And when they were asked to describe like these characters, they couldn't come up with anything to describe who they were. Just imagine it. Because in the end, they're just not well-written characters. And that's the problem with the Robert Langdon characters, that he's just not a well-written, interesting character. Tom Hanks tries to make him interesting, but it's just not. Let's uh, toss it off to final thoughts and grades out of 10. And then also, Lee, I'm going to ask this question. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I'm going to ask it. Do you see any Oscar potential with this film? Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) Uh, I was kind of thinking this over, like, oh, special effects or, uh, you know, makeup for the the hell scenes and all. And uh, just no, just absolutely not. (laughs) I think... um, As a movie, I can't recommend it to a single person. I don't even think people who just like to sort of sit and watch things happen on screen will be pleased with this, you know? It really is just a sort of a straight line of people running from place to place and a bunch of dialogue that doesn't mean anything, and then it ends. Oh, oh, that ending is so terrible. If they fight over a plastic bag, and and that's pretty much that's pretty much all you need to really say about it. You know, five, ten minutes of people shooting each other over a plastic bag. It's, it's awful. It's not even that. It's more <laughs> like the last, the
0: literally the last shot of the film is just so cheesy. And such a weird note to end the movie on before it cuts to the credits. I, I absolutely hated it.
1: Oh, uh, it's, yeah. Well, yeah, so out of, out of ten, I would give it a ten. Uh, I think a two, I guess. Uh, I think that's what I give it on relatively on my side. It's, uh, it is a, okay, you know, you can, you can watch it. It's not going to be fun. And Tom Hanks, he does do things with it. And plus it's, it's kind of at least interesting in a, in a terrible way, just how not to make a film. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I, 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 there's not really any redeeming qualities here whatsoever.
0: Uh yeah no no redeeming qualities here for the most part I mean I'm trying to find the silver lining in almost everything as I watch all the time in the opening moments of the film where Tom Hanks wakes up in the hospital he's suffering from the head head injury he's got the amnesia he's freaking out I immediately was like I can't even enjoy this right now because I'm just having comparisons to Captain Phillips right now at the end of that movie. <laughs> so this is a huge problem right off the bat. This is a very, very big problem. Yeah. So right away from the very get-go, the film had already lost me. Um, ben Foster uh, was barely going to be in the movie, and that made me upset too. I mean, I guess I should have realized that from the trailers and the marketing materials as well because they kind of gave it away there. But sure. uh, I mean – felicity jones maybe no she was a stinker in this hmm. omar Sy, uh sees her, uh award-winning actor for the untouchables you know i mean nope just yeah wow. we're just not gonna give him a character whatsoever <laughs> no so what was there what was left in this film i mean at the end of the day here i never ever give a film a zero out of ten sure There's always something redeemable about a film because nobody in the world sets out to make a bad movie. A film is a long endeavor that usually takes years to make. So nobody's going to do that if they think it's bad. Yeah. So there's always got to be something good, even in a pile of shit. Sure. And in this (laughs) film, it's Tom Hanks. And I guess if you are a fan of Hans Zimmer's work on the previous films and you just want to hear an electronic version of that because that's literally all this is, his score <laughs> is listenable, I suppose. So sure. that's all I will give it. Ron Howard needs a comeback film now at this point. he He's just – it's it's not looking good for him right now. Two Two really bad films in a row for him. I give this film a 1 out of 10 zero oscar potential it's one of the worst films i've seen this year with that said lee tell them where they can find you on the internet
1: oh yeah well as you said i can be found at big and uh you can add me on twitter at big Pick reviews and uh say hi and i'll say hi back it's pretty fun <laughs> i want to thank you very much for being on the show to discuss
0: inferno with me i know that uh it was not an easy sit-through, and it was also maybe not the easiest film to talk about in many ways, but we we, we managed as best as we could. Um, dear listeners, keep listening as we are now going to head over to our review of Certain Women, where I will be joined by my very good friend, J.D. Duran from InSessionFilm.com. never done this before. Well, I guess we'll just start at the beginning.
1: Hey, Flint. What are you doing here?
2: Came to see my lawyer. My wife wants me out of the house.
1: You can't keep coming here. Your wife works
2: for you.
0: No, she's the boss, actually. I wonder
1: how much more there might be buried here. I was so afraid
0: I'd
2: get out of law school and be selling shoes. Mom works in a school cafeteria, my sister in a hospital laundry, so selling shoes is the nicest job a girl from my family's supposed to get.
0: Let's you and I make an effort to be nice to your mom today. Why? Because neither of us do very well without her. Okay, so certain women, Is a story about three strong-willed women, played by Kristen Stewart, Laura Dern, and Michelle Williams, as they strive to forge their own paths amidst the wide-open plains of the American Northwest. A lawyer who finds herself contending with both office sexism and hostage situation, a wife and mother whose determination to build her dream home puts her at odds with the men in her life, and a young law student who forms an ambiguous bond with a lonely ranch hand. The cast is Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, Laura Dern, James LaGrosse, Jared Harris, Renee Auberjonos, and Lily Gladstone. This is written and directed by Kelly Ridehart. And with me on this review, I've got JD Duran from InSessionFilm.com, also part of the InSession Film podcast. JD? Who the hell are you? I don't I feel. I don't know you. Uh,
1: I know we're it's not been friends. Such a
2: long time,
0: <laughs> right? No, this is your first time, time on the show, right?
2: Is, it is. I think so. <laughs> Actually, that's the
0: funny thing. It is your first time on the show. I've been on your show countless times. So yeah, now yeah. it's great to have you, man.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of this show. I listen to it just about every week, so uh, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, and this this is a very nice uh, little plug moment right here. I had a great opportunity to recently help uh, you guys out with a new segment uh, as part of your show. Tell them about that really quick.
2: Yeah, so we have a new bonus content segment that we are planning to do uh, a few times between now and, of course, the Oscars uh, next spring. But uh, we have a new segment called And The Winner Is with uh, Mr. Matt Neggs Negs uh, here. And essentially what we're doing is what you guys do. We talk about award season and all the hoopla that comes with that. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to that. The first episode is now up in at IncessionFilm.com. You can also find it on the Incession Film app, and all of those details are at IncessionFilm.com as well. But uh, yeah, it was, it was really, really fun talking Best Actress as well as a few other categories, so I look forward to what the fall has to bring.
0: Me too, me too. And it's interesting because the film that we're about to review was actually at the New York Film Festival, which I attended this year, uh, but I did not get a chance to catch it. Um, I'm actually now. So I saw it in theaters uh, this weekend, and that is certain women. Now, a little bit of a brief uh, little backstory on this. Have you seen uh, Kelly Reichardt's other films before?
2: Yes. Yes, I have. Which ones did you say? See? I've seen *Meek's Cutoff*. I've seen *Wendy and Lucy*, and I've seen *Old Joy*. I think her first two films are the only ones I need to catch up with.
0: Gotcha. I've seen Meek's Cut-Off, Wendy and Lucy, and for the life of me, I cannot remember uh, the name of it right now. Oh, Night, Night
2: Moves is the other one I've seen. That was yes. the one. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I've seen mm-hmm. that one as well. Yeah.
0: And, well, let me put it this way. Uh, we're we're going to talk about her and we're going to talk about her style a lot. Uh, but let's first throw it off to you. What did you think of Certain Women?
2: Well, I'll start off by saying that I am a huge fan of Kelly Reichardt. Meeks Cutoff made my top 10 of 2011, I believe it was. Wendy and Lucy made my top 10 of 2008. And while Old Joy didn't make my top 10 of 2006, I still think it's a very good film that I really enjoyed. And Night Moves as well is one that I mostly enjoyed. Now I want to kind of start off my thoughts by referencing you, Negs, because in your written review for this, you mentioned that certain women is quietly patient, it's beautiful yet frustrating in its lack of narrative conflict. Not to spoil your thoughts, but that is up on your website. So it is public. Um it is public, and I can completely sympathize with that notion. And I don't think that Kelly Reichardt's style is for everyone. It's not just certain women, but all of her films are methodical and thoughtful in their approach. And she will test your patience, but that patience and thoughtfulness makes her films real. Attainable. There's a visceral nature that seeps from her film's pores. And I think Certain Women is certainly in alignment with the rest of her filmography and all of that. This film is slow and orderly, but it's a beautiful depiction of humanity in, in rural America and what it's like to be a working woman in this time and place. And I feel like Kelly Reichardt's direction makes that notion alluring and really genuine. Narratively, as you were kind of mentioning there in the synopsis, it's these three different stories that explore different angles of this Montana community, especially as it relates to those ideas that I was just referencing. And while on the surface, they feel separated from one another, but I think Reichardt's editing in which she does it by herself, I think makes... Each of them feel like they belong in the same space. They feel seamless in transition, but at the same time, they're not so interwoven that it's artificial or forced. And I think the way Reichardt uses the camera here amplifies the film's visceral nature and what her characters are experiencing. There are some landscape shots in this movie that are somewhat extravagant. And in another filmmaker's hands, I feel like they would be more glamorous but Reichardt really tones down a lot of that. There are very few quote-unquote beauty shots in certain women, and the ones that we do get are more barren and isolated in tone, which I think elevates this film's themes and Reichardt's overall ability to offer something real and and attainable. And I think as a result, if you're able to succumb to this film's methodical pace, I do think it has some provocative things to offer. The conflict of Kelly Reichardt is, is in her characters internally and in her own usual way. She makes all of that resonate by being contemplative and letting her actors be transparent. And I love, 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 love the way Kelly Reichardt makes me respond to her inside that approach. And she had me once again with certain women.
0: Well, uh, with all that said, I guess it's kind of mute for me to ultimately say my thoughts on the film for the most part, um, as you alluded to earlier when you pretty much uh, said it exactly as it is on my side. And that is that I, I while I agree with what you're saying in certain respects here, I just could not connect to this story because to me, it didn't almost seem like there was a story. It just seemed like it was more of a an essay with a theme that you would write for school.
2: And that's Kelly Reichardt through and through. Right. Absolutely. You
0: know, I I would, I would say my favorite film of hers is still Meek's cutoff. And I think a lot of that does have to do with the genre with which that Mm -hmm. film is based in. And I just had a lot of fun with the way that she took her style and applied it to the West here. I just find it to be, Beautiful in certain respects as it, as it comes to the writing and the characterization, uh, as, as well as the performances by the actors involved as well. But, man, I was waiting for something to always happen. And it's not until, for me at least, the very end of the film, where the Lily Gladstone character... Uh, has just reached a pivotal moment, and she's driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's driving in her vehicle, and the camera lingers on her as she's driving. That the film really does reach an emotional climax, where for me, I really, I really started to feel something. Uh, I felt like leading up to that, the basic theme that I had kind of gathered while watching this movie was the theme of invisibility, mm. and how these women all feel that they are unseen unheard and unrespected Mm -hmm. so that lack of acknowledgement is something that i think weaves itself through all three of the stories you have it with the laura dern uh character where she's telling uh jared harris for years about the predicament of his uh court case that he's trying to with his lawsuit here and the minute he hears it from a man it he just says okay and she like looks like – I've been telling him about this for years and he doesn't listen. But all of a sudden you say it and he, it just clicks with him, you know? And sure. I I found that also with the way Michelle Williams also interacted with her husband who's also a, another thorough line in the movie here. Um, and then the Kristen Stewart, Lily Gladstone uh, story, I did find it to be tender. I found it to be sweet and I – I, I get what it was going for. It was almost as if, like, Kelly Reichardt was almost trying to do, like, her very own Brokeback Mountain in a way. And that's what sure. I kept having the mental comparisons to while watching those scenes play out. It, it just, something about it, like, mm-hmm. while on the page, it almost plays out like poetry, on the screen, it didn't captivate mm-hmm. me. hmm
2: Yeah, and I think that's certainly fair because that's essentially what this movie is going for. And like I said, I'm captivated by Kelly Reichardt's style. That poetry absolutely fascinates me. It sounds like thematically we're in a similar boat. I wouldn't say that this film is about one thing, though. I don't think it's that simple. And additionally, this movie, it's similar to something like Wendy and Lucy in the sense that these three stories don't depict a usual beginning, middle, and end. And I know that's going to frustrate some people. It's simply at its core moments in the lives of these women in this time and place and who are all coping with something internally. As I was saying, I think if I had to boil it down to a commonality though, and this is where I would somewhat agree with you, I would say that these stories are about feeling desperate and isolated. Each of the Laura, Gina, Jamie, and Beth characters represent these traits on some level. Even the Gina character, who, as you mentioned, is married and she's struggling to feel connected to her husband and their daughter or you look at the Jamie and Beth characters despite the two of them sharing some genuine moments together they end up in the same place they were before they met one another there are so many moments in this movie where characters struggle to connect with someone or simply say anything at all there's one scene near the end of the film where one character says to Laura why didn't you write me back and she replies by saying I didn't know what to say and I think on several occasions characters they don't know how to respond to other characters so they don't they just linger on awkward silences and I think it's in those moments where Kelly Reichardt's characters exist and live the most and that's what I find so fascinating about her films and that poetry you're talking about. She doesn't care about conventional storytelling or presenting these high-risk life-and-death stakes, but the encounters that her characters experience in her films are significant stakes inside the pulse of Reichardt's realistic style. And I think in this film, the interactions that each Laura, Gina, Jamie, and Beth experience... It does give them pause. And at the heart of that interruption is this heartfelt notion of feeling desperation and feeling isolated. And I think when you wrestle with that, especially within Reichardt's rhythm, that poetry, again, that I am very, very much attached to personally, I think it's very provocative.
0: Now, there is a very famous um, phrase that Alfred Hitchcock used to say, and I'm sure you read this in my review. Mm-hmm. And the phrase goes something like, drama is life with the dull bits cut out. So, to me, it almost seems like Kelly Reichardt is so She's focused. She's the
2: antithesis to that. <laughs> exactly.
0: Now, <laughs> yeah. does that create for good cinema?
2: I, for me, it does. And I, again, going back to some of my initial thoughts, I sympathize if this film isn't for everybody because it's not conventional storytelling. It's not conventional drama. What Reichart is interested in is characterization. She's interested in presenting themes, but she does it in her own realistic sense. I think what I love so much about her style is I feel like I am supplanted in these real-life settings with what feels like real-life characters. Instead of portraying actors and actresses on screen, it almost feels documentary to me in the sense that it does feel like real life. And I think by stripping out drama and inserting mundane, real-life aspects of what people deal with, it makes her themes and it makes what she's attempting to do more visceral to me personally and again I understand that's not going to be for everybody it absolutely isn't for everybody but if you can fall into her rhythm there's a lot that you can take away in her films in that poetic sense and in a thematic sense that uh, again from a cinematic standpoint I think is wonderful especially when you break down her imagery and the way she's able to, you know, present these ideas on screen. It does feel cinematic to me.
0: Okay, well, of the three stories that are presented here, let me ask you this, which one of the three would you say is your favorite?
2: Hmm. Now that's a very good question. I think for me, if I had to pick one, I would pick the the third one. In the sense that, uh, well, for one, it features Kristen Stewart, who is my girl. I love, 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 love Kristen Stewart. And I do think she's good in her respective role here. But for me, out of all of the wonderful actresses and actors in this movie, it's newcomer Lily Gladstone that is a real revelation to me. She off, her, her performance essentially feels effortless. It's ambiguous in all the right ways. And I feel like she really comes alive. Her sense of longingness the the sense for companionship that gladstone depicts in her character is so beautiful and somewhat heartbreak heartbreaking all without trying she's not she's not trying to hit you over the head with anything emotionally it's all soft it's all subtly uh, handled which in the end i think makes it such a truly magical performance. And I don't know anything about Lily Gladstone. This may be the first thing I've seen her in. And she doesn't say much, yet I felt sympathy for her character, especially inside this idea of connecting or trying to connect with someone. She she has simultaneously a connection and a disconnect with the Kristen Stewart character. And I feel like all of that uh, comes alive really, really well, especially when going back to those main themes I was talking about. And in fact, I, that um, that particular relationship also features perhaps my favorite shot of the movie. Uh, I was talking about how I feel like Reichart kind of tones back some of these quote unquote beauty shots. But there's there's one moment in this film where the two of them are sharing a moment, I'll just say. I don't want to reveal it. But together, as they're leaving this building, they're about to walk off the frame. And as that happens, we see light from the streetlight kind of reflecting off of the camera. And it kind of creates this halo effect on the two of them that I thought was really gorgeous and really wonderful. It was one of the very few times that Reichart kind of let the beauty of the moment, both narratively, thematically, and also aesthetically kind of shine together in, in one individual single moment which I thought was great so I love all three of them but if I had to pick one I'd probably pick that third one
0: yeah you know at first I thought that the Laura Dern story was going to be my favorite because I really liked the work that also Jared Harris was doing Mm -hmm. and it also seemed like the story that did have those missing stakes that uh, you talked about before that the film does not need but for me I felt like it needed to some degree or another Um, there is also a, a little bit of Stakes introduced when uh, the Beth character played by Kristen Stewart seemingly goes missing and Lily Gladstone's character is uh, frantically looking for her. But it's like it's these moments, the, these moments where the story is, uh, you know, cast into an interesting direction, which mm-hmm. is what kept me engaged. I have to say out of all three of the storylines, I would say that the Michelle Williams one is I I, I just felt it was pointless, honestly. I felt like she (laughs) felt... I I really felt she was even wasted as an actor in this film. I I didn't see what she brought to this that any other female could could not have brought to it. I I mean, I get it. They've worked with each other before, and, and Kelly just likes, obviously, working with Michelle Williams. But it just something about that particular storyline did yeah. nothing at all nothing with that got to me at all
2: see i don't find that pointless at all i loved michelle williams in this i don't feel like she's wasted at all in fact I think she does a great job of juxtaposing the other two stories in the sense that her character is the least sympathetic in this movie. She really isn't quite likable through a lot of her time on screen. She's very difficult to deal with, and she's arguably the biggest outlier of the entire movie. But I think she does a great job of resonating these ideas of a disconnect. And I love the irony because she interacts with the most people in this movie. She's the only one of the women that are married. She has a family she's got a lot going for her yet in her performance I still felt that idea of isolation that idea of desperation and I think Michelle Williams does a great job of making that transparent and and very nuanced and I think that's the brilliance of this film in terms of not only the actresses but, w- but what Kelly Reichardt brings to them she frames them in a way where the actresses can let all of that really come alive. And I felt that. And I think as a result, you get a rich variety of emotional responses when it comes to being a woman in rural America. We do get a whole spectrum, if you will, of, of, of what it's like for these women in this particular place and time. And I think the, the whole Michelle Williams storyline is, is pivotal in making us feel that spectrum.
0: Well, agree to disagree uh, in any event, though, uh, let's pass it off to final thoughts, a grade out of 10. And do you think that there's any Oscar potential for this film?
2: Well, as far as Oscar potential, I, I don't know. I'm I'm I wouldn't call myself an expert in that manner. So I will leave that really for you guys to answer. But I will say I personally love the performances of this movie. I love Kelly Reichardt's style. I think she brings a lot of poetry to this film. I think she brings a lot of of thematic resonance to this movie. And I think she does it with not only getting the kind of performances that she does, but also some of the subtle imagery of this film. There's a couple different times, especially with the Gina character, where we just see Gina reflecting on what's happening to her internally. But as that happens, Reichardt will shoot uh, Gina having this moment of reflection through some sort of window or or some sort of pane of glass where we see Gina's face, but simultaneously we see landscapes in the background reflecting off of the window. And I think it just it parallels what Gina's going through in those moments so so well. I, I just love the way Kelly Reichardt isn't interested in glamour in this film. In fact I could I think one could argue that some of the cinematography of this movie is kind of dull. It's kind of colorless in a lot of ways. And I find that so intentional in portraying these themes. And and especially we see lots of, uh, snow and it feels very cold. And I think that also amplifies those ideas as well. And I also love the sound design to this film. It's mostly natural sound. We hear people walking on snow or just uh, the wind blowing in the air or cars driving down the street. There's very little score to this film, which adds to its authenticity and realism. I think the little score we do get from Jeff Grace, I do think is very good. Again, if you're a fan of Kelly Reichardt, there's a lot to love here, I think. She knows how to take a simple narrative structure that doesn't get bogged down in connective tissue, and instead she allows for robust characterization and these potent themes I've been talking about to reflect humanity at its core, especially what it means to be a woman in this particular time and place. And I find uh, the way Reichardt explores that... uh, well, poetic, as we've used a couple different times. But again, this isn't for everybody. You have to be willing to subject yourself to Reichardt's style, which is very methodical. It's very thoughtful. It's very slow, and that's going to turn off a lot of people. I think what you brought up, Negs, in terms of that quote from Alfred Hitchcock is really important to note because Reichardt isn't interested in conventional drama or storytelling, and you you know, you either have to be willing to fall into Reichardt's rhythm or just move on. And and if you do like her style and rhythm, I think this is absolutely worth your time. It's very, very beautiful and gorgeous. And the last thing I know, I know I've been rambling on here <laughs> is <laughs> the dedication to this film I thought was poignant because she dedicates this film to Lucy, who, if you don't know, uh, was uh, a dog was her dog that she featured in several of her films uh, going back to 2006, I believe it was. So uh, I just thought that was a nice little touch as well. So I, I, I don't know, out of 10, I usually don't grade out of 10, so I don't really know. I'd probably say an eight out of 10. On our grading scale, I'd probably give this an A.
0: All right sounds good you know you talked about narrative structure before uh, one thing I do appreciate was her unwillingness to do a lot of cross-cutting back and forth between the three narratives she just lets each one play out all uh, those if they're like their own short films in a way. And I, I really dug that about the storytelling here because it allowed me to at least follow the storyline um, effortlessly and really get invested mm-hmm. in what was going on. If I was able to, yeah. if that is, like as I was saying before, there was a little bit of a disconnect there. Um, I think that all the performances are fine. I think that her characterization is fine. I even think her direction is fine. It's just that lack of drama, that lack of conflict that... Though I understand it is an acquired taste, I do fall in the upper camp of that. And I don't want to repeat myself anymore on this issue. You've done a really, really great job of eloquently uh, stating uh, both arguments here. So um I do fall into that category as a result, and it it doesn't it doesn't get to me, unfortunately. So I am most people, as you were saying before. <laughs>
1: um
0: <laughs> As far as a grade goes, I have to go down the middle. I have to do 5 out of 10 for my own personal grade here. And as far as any Oscar potential, no, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, we talk Oscars all the time on Next Best Picture, and certain women right now is not being talked about for any categories whatsoever. With that said, though, I will say that Kelly Reichardt is very talented In the way that she is able to get these performances out of her actors and the way that she is able to write her characters so um, well that one day I would not be surprised if one day she does uh, create a film that does get her some Oscar buzz. It it will happen for sure. So with that said, J.D., Mm -hmm. tell them where they, they where they can find you on the Internet.
2: Well, you can find me praising this film more on our show this weekend at Incessionfilm.com. Uh, you can find us on social media, just search inception film and you'll find us on all the various networks. Same thing with our podcast, just search inception film podcast and you'll find us. But again, everything on a central hub com. All
0: right. Thank you very much for being a part of the Next Best Picture podcast, J.D. I know for a fact it will not be the last time. And as we alluded to earlier, I will be on your show again very, very soon. So everybody be sure to check that out, as J.D. said, at InSessionFilm.com. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. I am Matt Meglia, and I will see you all next time.